Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. This is one of our special episodes where, as you know, we broadcast a lecture or a talk by one of our fellows or guests. But in this case, it is even more special for me. For once, I was the guest. So for the next 15 minutes, you will listen to a recent talk that I had the pleasure and honor to give in Warsaw in the context of the International Academic Conference co-organized by Ave Maria School of Law and Cardinal Stefan Lisiewski University in Poland. The talk, titled The Age of No-Fault Divorce, The Jeweler Shop and the Need for Natural Marriage, focuses on a theatrical play that John Paul II published long before becoming a pope and now a saint. The title of the conference, John Paul II's Natural Law Legacy and International Human Rights, I think explains, at least in part, why I chose to focus on a play to speak about the institution of the family. There may be several reasons to use poetry rather than prose, or in addition to prose, to defend marriage and the family, both today as it was true in the times of John Paul II, but I will tell you more about this in my talk. For now, I hope you will enjoy this episode and please remember to subscribe and share. Thank you. Um, good afternoon to everyone and thank you for, uh, to all the organizers and in particular to the colleague and friend, Professor Castaldi for inviting me to this incredible conference. And I'm also pleased to share this panel with, well, at least I thought so, with an old dear friend, Professor Bassett, but um, who I had the pleasure to meet during my PhD at Padua and then in Buenos Aires, and that made me think that the, the ward is very small. Um, I'm very sorry that I could not participate in person, and I really hope that another chance uh, will come up soon for me. Um, Poland has been on my list for a long while now, and the friends and colleagues who live there are many. Uh, in the meantime, I suggest to all uh, a visit to Austin, where the weather is always uh, nice, as are its people. And I apologize for my voice, but Austin is also the capital of allergies, and they did not spare me. Um, but without any further ado, I would like to spend the next 15 minutes hoping in a good and stable internet connection with great audio. Um, presenting my paper, which is centered on an analysis of the jeweler shop which is one of Carol Wojtyła's theatrical plays. First, I think I should start by explaining to the audience why a legal scholar working for a social science research institute should decide to focus on a piece by a former pope to speak about the no-fault divorce mentality of today and about natural marriage. And to answer that question, allow me to let Carol Wojtyła speak. And before I read a passage, just to give you a little context, you're about to hear from Monica, the young protagonist of the third act of The Jeweler Shop, titled The Children. Monica is the daughter of Anna and Stefan, whose story and failing marriage is the topic of the second act, The Bridegroom. The man she will be referring to is Christopher, son of the couple that we encounter in the first act of the play, Andrew and Teresa. Now, I would share my screen, uh, but I don't trust technology enough. So 
If you allow me, I will just read the passage and I ask you to pay particular attention to it because it will be central to my talk. And yet, I'm afraid of myself and also afraid for you. Before that, for a long time, I was afraid of you and for myself. Your father went away and died, and yet the union remained. You were its spokesman. The love passed to you. My parents live like two strangers. The union one dreams of does not exist, where one person wants to accept and to give life for two. Will it not be a mistake, my dear? Will it not come to an end? One day, will you not leave as my father has, who is a stranger at home? Shall I not leave like mother, who has become a stranger? Is human love at all capable of enduring through man's whole existence? End of quote. So these words of Monica, and in particular, the accuracy with which they describe the fears and the wounds of a lonely girl are what made a legal scholar like me feel entitled to write a paper on the need for natural marriage. Her words were my words. And they were the words that I heard and that I keep hearing from most of the people around me, peers and students alike. In the words of Monica and in her fear and doubts that at any point she might be abandoned by the young Christopher, the man who professes deep love for her, lie all the fears of the children of what I call the age of no-fault divorce. An age and a word where words and promises do not count. Where parents leave their children to be raised by others on a regular basis and with little or no regret. In her words lie the tragedy of a world where marriage is just not necessarily forever. Such fears and doubts are usually stronger in individuals who are themselves the children of divorce and social science seems to show that, that children of divorce are less prone to get married and to stay married. But as sociology and even our personal experience confirms, whatever happens in the community affects all its members, not just the closest ones. If your neighbors got a divorce, your child might doubt marital love as well. And if your friends sign prenuptial agreements, you might be tempted to do the same. So in this respect, of course, the laws that reshaped marriage and divorce played a pedagogic role. So did our interconnectedness and the legion of bad examples and narratives constantly popping up on social media. Not, not questioning that. But this fear about marriage, I think, has a much deeper root. It did not originate in the availability of divorce per se, but it preceded it. This fear originated in a wrong understanding of marriage and of marital love that preceded our liberal laws. This is what I think John Paul II prophetically described in this short and very powerful play. In its no-fault form, divorce is but one fruit of the misconceived idea that marriage is an accident rather than a calling, 
and that it's forever is a choice rather than an anthropological demand of our complementary, generative and eternal nature. And that mistaken view of marriage is older than our no-fault divorce laws. The stories of the short play invite the reader to acknowledge that the introduction of no-fault divorce laws, which made spousal incompatibility a good enough reason to abandon one's spouse, doing away with the traditional exceptional grounds for divorce, followed the embracement of what many have called the soulmate idea of marriage. The idea that marriage is about feelings and about finding the right one who will fulfill all our needs. And in that sense, marriage is now a capstone rather than a foundation. So the laws followed our sentimental approach to vows, which if they were about feelings, would have no reason to exist. So of course, when divorce is available to all at whim, as it is today, it truly takes a hero to abandon a secure job to follow a husband's dream or to welcome pregnancies while still paying out students' loans. Today, crisis of marriage in this respect is simply inevitable. No-fault divorce laws carry an immense pedagogical message and they need to be changed. But deeper than the role of such laws is the fact that no one wants a marriage like that of Monica's parents, Anna and Stefan, who, as we learn from the play, were still living together, and yet they were strangers to each other. To truly avoid divorce in its mentality, we need to rediscover the profound meaning of marriage. And this short play can help us all do that in particular through the story of Anna. So Anna, Monica's mother, epitomizes the woman whose love for her husband, Stefan, has simply faded away. From the start, we'll learn about her desire to live in and to follow her feelings. The husband is so remote from her heart that he does not even appear in the act. But two figures she encounters, not laws, not prohibitions, two people. And a vision of one man that she most longs for help her change her mind. First, she meets Adam, a mysterious and very wise man who some identified with the same Boitiwa and its role of spiritual director and friend in his Rodovishko. And Adam puts Anna in front of her own questions and doubts. She wants to leave Stefan and he helps her reason about her choice, their choice to leave. And when she wants to go to the jeweler shop and sell her wedding ring, he simply tells her, quote, the thing is not to go away and wander for days, months, even years. The thing is to return and in the old place to find oneself, end of quote. And not many friends would tell you this today. And yet it's so true. Anna also meets the very jeweler who tells her that her ring has no value on its own. Her husband, he says, must be alive. Quote, your husband must be alive, in which case neither of your rings taken separately 
will weigh anything. My jeweler scales have this peculiarity that they weigh not the metal, but man's entire being in faith. End of quote. Adam also points Anna to the bridegroom, a young man who is passing by and to whom Anna is incredibly attracted. She wants to be ready for him. Of course, this is a clear image of Christ, bridegroom of the church, spouse. And that scene is accompanied by Anna's vision of both wise and wicked virgins, echoes of the gospel story, the former on their way, buying more oil, and the latter having fallen asleep. And Anna is clearly sleeping in her love, not looking for a way to refill her own lamp, to nourish her own heart and love. Yet she wants to be ready for the bridegroom, and to do so, we learn, she does not need to go to church. She does not need to go to confession. As we read at the end of the act, the bridegroom, as for Anna, the face of Stefan, her earthly spouse. To deserve the love of the bridegroom, in other words, she only needs to love her husband more. The truth of marriage, I think this is what Boitiwa writes, <clears throat> is the same for religious and lay people alike. Because marriage is inscribed in our nature and in our anthropology. We all understand sacrificial love. And as someone like um, Jordan Peterson would point out now, humanity, including non-believers, always understood that there is no greater love than the one that dies on the cross for the sake of another. But if we can understand sacrificial love, and if we can be moved by it, then there is no reason why anyone would want to settle for less. When spouses promise each other eternal love, I would argue that this is what they actually mean. That's what they want and that's what they think possible because this is as far as we can dream. To find true happiness, one needs to love beyond one's own natural inclinations and limits and beyond those of our spouses. The man needs to kill the dragons, as to use a Chestertonian image, and the woman, Anna in this case, needs to welcome him, Stefan, beyond what is strictly due to Stefan. <clears throat> in my opinion, this play is not only a wonderful piece of theater by a man and now saint with far too many talents. This play is both a description and an antidote to the culture where the revisionist idea of marriage could take root, which is the one in which we live. And borrowing here the language uh, from the excellent scholar with whom I had the honor and pleasure to work while at Princeton, Professor Robert P. George, the revisionist idea of marriage of today entails that marriage is whatever we make of it, that it can have all and solely the characteristics that our laws decide to give it. On the other hand, according to the natural law-based conjugal view, marriage is, a necessarily, is necessarily a comprehensive, exclusive, and permanent union of a man and a woman open to procreation. And this regardless of what the law says. Now, very often today in our academic circles, where even our sexual complementarity is challenged, the conjugal view of marriage is hard to defend 
Most of the arguments rely on what the data shows. Data, however, can say many different things. They can serve utilitarian purposes and they do not necessarily support the idea of human rights. Um, data do not necessarily say that human rights are more important than a flourishing economy. So our times, I would say, might call for theater rather than prose, as was true at the time of OITYU's youth. During the war years, theater lived and performed underground by his rhapsodic group was a vehicle for the young man, Carol, and for his friends to fight um, the cultural battle against evil. For them, literature was a powerful weapon against an occupying power that was preventing Polish people from thinking for themselves, fueling hatred, ideology, and violence by means of burning books, canceling the local culture, and silencing speech, both in the academia and among the laymen. And the same perhaps is true for us today and with reference to marriage. As much as it did in his, in his philosophical work, Love and Responsibility, Wojtyla grounds the conjugal view of marriage in our very nature, in our anthropology. We need marriages because our souls are made for relationships and made for love. And we need these marriages to be forever because we were made for forever. So this year of no-fault divorce, which is an age of mistrust and fear, requires a different understanding of love and marriage much more and before any policy change. And in conclusion, as Jesus answered to the Pharisees, it was because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. So if we want to change the laws, as I think we should, we need to change hearts first. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to our episode. I hope you liked it. And if you still haven't, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and to share it among your friends.